Welcome to Deuterocanons. I'm Justin, and typically Byron would be with me, but since he's out of town for an extended period of time, you might call this the first episode of Solo Canon, though still very much under the auspices of your friendly neighborhood Deuterocanons. Our motto here at Deuterocanons, or as the case may be, Solo Canon, is conform no longer, taken from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so that, that motto, conform no longer, is something that, that's on my mind a lot. It's, I know it's on Byron's mind a lot. And that's, that's a call for everybody who loves Jesus, everybody who cares about what's good and true and beautiful as revealed by, by the Lord himself, to recognize the way that the world operates, the, the voices that the world values, uh, the priorities that, that people have, and, and to recognize that what God has for us so often is so different. And so on, on that theme of conforming no longer, I want to take a look at a voice that is influential, a voice that considered himself to be prophetic in his day. It's somebody that you've probably heard of, but maybe uh, don't know some things about that, uh, that that I'm going to share in this episode. I want to talk about H.G. Wells, socialist apostle, prophet, and time traveler. For the majority of his expansive literary career, during which he published more than 50 novels, over 100 short stories, around 75 works of nonfiction, and scores of articles, H.G. Wells advocated an optimistic, nearly utopian, futurist gospel. His fame began, though, with one of the earliest forays into dystopian fiction, called The Time Machine, published back in 1895, which most of you have probably heard of and maybe have seen a movie or two, uh, either try to retell that story or use those ideas, or if you're like me, you saw Wishbone on PBS back in the late 90s, and there was a, a Time Machine episode that, that good old Wishbone did. Back when that book came out, reviewers called it the work of a man of genius. And then another review recognized that Wells used the novel to issue a moral warning to contemporary society, which is something that all dystopian literature does. And, and if you're not familiar with that term dystopian, it's, it's the inversion of utopia. Utopia is this vision of the world as it ought to be, but in a dystopia, dys, D-Y-S, dystopia is society broken. Typically, in fact, by the pursuit of utopia itself. And we're going to find out that it's incredibly ironic that that's how H.G. Wells began his career. 
So the novel, The Time Machine, follows the recollections of a scientist and inventor referred to only as the time traveler, who has recently returned from, from the remote future. Humanity in the year, get this, 802,701 has evolved into two distinct subspecies. The surface-dwelling Eloi, E-L-O-I, which, you know, one wonders why exactly or how exactly he came up with that name, and I, I've not been able to find any research on, on that particular matter. So there's the surface-dwelling Eloi and the subterranean Morlocks. The Eloi, around four foot tall, frail, and androgynous, exhibit the intellect of an English five-year-old. After spending a day with his distant descendants, the time traveler remarks, I never met people more indolent or more easily fatigued, but then turns his mind to the evolutionary expedience of androgyny. Yes, in 1895, H.G. Wells was reflecting on the evolutionary expedience of androgyny. Compare that to what we are seeing today. And in that, he sees the possible future realization of one of the top priorities for the Fabian Society that he was a part of, along with others like Sidney Webb and George Bernard Shaw, intellectual socialists in Britain, around the turn of the century and thereafter. One of their top priorities he sees in this is population control. Ironically, the time traveler's next statement not only foreshadows his eventual tragic understanding of the humanity of the distant future, but also Wells' own admission that he made in the last year of his life in a book called Mind at the End of Its Tether. He says, this, I must remind you, was my speculation at the time. Later, I was to appreciate how far it fell short of the reality. The time traveler's next speculations on man's evolutionary divergence recognizes not the result of a population balanced and abundant, as he initially supposed, but rather an epoch proceeding from the problems of our own age. And it seems to him, quote, clear as daylight, that the gradual widening of the present, merely temporary and social difference between the capitalist and the laborer, unquote, had over broad spans of time generated biological expression of this inequity. In other words, social Darwinism becomes, in the long run, biological Darwinism. And he laments, quote, that the great triumph of humanity I dreamed of took a different shape in my mind. It had been no such triumph of moral education and general cooperation as I had imagined. Instead, I saw a real aristocracy, armed with a perfected science, and working to a logical conclusion the industrial system of today. Its triumph had not been simply a triumph over nature, but a triumph over nature, and the fellow man. Interestingly, that very statement is echoed in The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, which is something that hopefully we'll be, we'll be talking about in, a, in an episode soon. So the capitalist, the Eloi, 
had at last become an even more highly advanced hominid subspecies in his own right, yet still maintained hierarchical ease somehow, he thought, by exploiting the now genetically devolved working class, the Morlocks. But as the time traveler later discovers, an inversion has also occurred. A hitherto unforeseen nightmare in the quandary of socioeconomic disparity, he says, Ages ago, thousands of generations ago, man had thrust his brother man out of the ease and the sunshine, and now that brother was coming back, changed. This transformation of the subterranean working class into pale, large-eyed, lemur-like creatures, combined with the genetic and intellectual warning of the Eloi, brings the time traveler to a horrific discovery. The Morlocks feed on their former oppressors. He realizes that the red meat he had seen as he ventured into the Morlock underworld, splayed on a long table, was in fact one of the Eloi, which, amount, which accounts for their inexpressible fear of the Morlocks. In all likelihood, the Eloi, he says, are mere fatted calf, which the ant-like Morlocks preserved and preyed upon and probably saw to the breeding of. This new hellish tribalism of Wells's imagination is not the result of either Marxist or Fabian socialism carrying their respective progressive agendas too far, but rather the direct result of the bourgeoisie ignorantly counteracting the rise of the proletariat that Marx fancied to be predestined. In fact, H.G. Wells referred to Marxism as atheistic predestination, or atheistic Calvinism. After a harrowing night warding off waves of Morlock attacks, the time traveler sees Weena, one of the Eloi who incessantly follows him, dancing absent-mindedly with no apparent recollection of the previous night's horror in the underworld. This juxtaposition evokes further meditation, and he reckons humankind's apparent evolution is, he says, a rigorous punishment of human selfishness. The capitalist of his day and afterward had been content to live in ease and delight upon the labors of his fellow man, had taken necessity as his watchword and excuse, and in the fullness of time, necessity had come home to him. Ultimately, the time traveler despairs that human society, as it had developed through the late Victorian period, is not but a foolish heaping that must inevitably fall back upon and destroy its makers in the end. Wells's own optimistic Fabian progressivism, though not the primary focus of the time machine, comes through clearly in the time traveler's dashed expectations for the future. His lament that the great triumph of humanity I had dreamed of took a different shape in my mind and had been no such triumph of moral education and general cooperation as I had imagined is an idea that echoes throughout Wells's voluminous body of work. After the time machine, after, that, uh, pu- after his publication of, of that work, All of his hopes for humanity hinged on the ascendancy of a socialist world state achievable 
only through exhaustive global planning, benevolent expropriation of private property, scientifically propagandized education, and tech-savvy eugenics. Okay, so those things are what he believed would keep mankind from devolving eventually into the state that he imagines in the time machine. As early as 1901, Wells began fleshing out the socialist utopian answer to the time machine's nightmarish vision of the remote future with a series of books focused on necessary developments to come about in the near future. Some of those titles include Anticipations, Mankind in the Making, and A Modern Utopia. Wells himself cast A Modern Utopia as the culmination of his work up to that point, superseding the earlier two books, and admitted that their essays were, on the whole, disconnected, though well-intentioned, which is why that's the one that that I'm going to focus on here. Like other utopian visions, a modern utopia claims to be, quote, philosophical discussion on the one hand and imaginative narrative on the other. But the narrative centered on a pair of travelers exploring a utopian earth twin beyond the star Sirius is not nearly as philosophical or imaginative as it is delusionally ideological. The first sentence declares the premise. The utopia of a modern dreamer must needs differ in one fundamental aspect from the nowheres and utopias men planned before Darwin quickened the thought of the world. The difference, Wells declares, is that those were all perfect and static states. A balance of happiness won forever against the forces of unrest and disorder that inhere in things until the gods grow weary. While, on the other hand, his modern Darwinian state must not be static, but kinetic, must shape not as a permanent state, but as a hopeful stage leading to a long ascent of stages. It would be characterized by a flexible common compromise in which a perpetually novel succession of individualities may converge most effectually upon a comprehensive onward development. The recurrent focus is fluid, fluidity, change, adaptation, as state, as evolutionary in its socioeconomic equity, as in its biological development. Typical of Wells, a modern utopia casts a grand vision of the sort of world he and others of the open conspiracy advocated. Uh, Yeah, that's right, folks. The Fabian Society referred to their work literally as the open conspiracy. And and here's a quote, uh, about that, about that group and about their intent. Unlike conspiracies in general, this widening protest and conspiracy against established things would, by its very nature, go on in the daylight, and it would be willing to accept participation and help from every quarter. It would, in fact, become an open conspiracy, a necessary, naturally evolved conspiracy to adjust our dislocated world. They admitted that they were conspiring but they wanted it to be in the open because really that's ultimately either A, the best way to hide it or B, the best way to get people to join. 
So in that book, A Modern Utopia, Wells says that specific practical details would not be something he would discuss. He explains that there would be no inquiry here of policy and method. This is to be a holiday from politics and movements and methods, as opposed to other utopias which rosily assume that the whole race be wise, tolerant, noble, perfect, every man doing as it pleases him and none pleased to do evil, in a world as good in its essential nature, as ripe and sunny as the world before the fall. Wells sees a stark contrast in his own utopia, based on the world of here and now, and broadly assumes that all details and difficulties of life lie within man's power to alter. The world of here and now can only become the world state he envisions, for no less than a planet will serve the purpose, he says, through a process of complete emancipation from tradition, habits, legal bonds, and even possessions. You might hear echoes of that in statements like, you will own nothing and be happy. Thus, the mortal enemies of this world state are the breeding barbarian and economic power. Okay, so there's similar disgust in those who breed, but also those with economic power. So aside from the socioeconomic barbarians, each time Wells encounters a possible obstacle lying between the present age and the age to come, to borrow terminology from Jewish eschatology, he dismisses it with various iterations of, we need not suppose, and I I can't tell you how many times he uses that phrase in a modern utopia, but that's his, that's his his magic wand. Anytime there's any difficulty, he just throws in, we need not suppose, and it makes all of the problems, possible hang-ups, possible ways that something might go wrong, just leaves those to the side. For example, one of the things that he says is, we need suppose no linguis- linguistic, <laughs> linguistic, linguistic, we need suppose no linguistic impediments to intercourse, as if the mythic curse of Babel had never occurred. Since Wells's utopia is admittedly flexible, he recognizes that there will be many utopias. Each generation will have its new version of utopia, a little more certain and complete and real. Despite this caveat, his explanation seems rather a cop-out. In his two heroes' exploration of this doppelganger, paradisical planet beyond Sirius, Wells depicts total equity, both in opportunity and outcome for the sexes, races, working classes, uh, of universal suffrage and vegetarianism. But if the situation is as wholly flexible as he asserts, it's unclear how he could argue against a future world-state utopian movement that sought to democratically establish an even more modern utopia upon the very traditions his own eventually outdated utopia had dismantled. So, for example, if there were a utopian that arose in a generation, a thousand years in the future, that wanted actually to go back to the old-fashioned ways of uh, natural procreation, anti-eugenics, private property, and so forth the very things that so disgusted him, 
how exactly, or what, what, what leg would he have to stand on to say that that was a bad idea? How could he deny any such development if development itself is the goal? This paradox is similar to one that Wendell Berry described in his essay called Why I Am Not Going to Buy a Computer. He responds to those ridiculing his rejection of some modern technology with a claim even more progressive than that of those who fancy themselves technologically and socially innovative. He says, if the use of a computer is a new idea, then a newer idea is to not use one. Just three years after A Modern Utopia, Wells published another speculative venture called New Worlds for Old, a plain account of modern socialism, this time dropping the narrative device of interstellar travel. Unfortunately, the resulting argument, like A Modern Utopia, offers little in terms of specific policies and methods. Though organization, expropriation, and education stand out as primary but vague mechanisms of reshaping human society. A new development Wells offers in this later treatise is a tentative embrace of something immaterial or beyond material existence in stark contrast to his recurrent reliance upon Darwin, and thus materialism a priori. Discussing the need for progress despite the, quote, very wonderful and admirable spectacle of contemporary social achievements, he asserts one perceives something that goes on that is constantly working to make order out of, ca- out of casualty, beauty out of confusion, justice, kindliness, mercy out of cruelty, and inconsiderate pressure. For our present purpose, it will be sufficient to speak of this force that struggles and tends to make and do as goodwill. This force redolent of the god or gods of religions he often denounced as outdated and thus obsolete, from which man requires emancipation, turns out to be the active force behind the, quote, secular amelioration of life. For, he says, on the whole and nowadays almost steadily, things get better, and it is brought about by goodwill working through the efforts of men. Wells is furthermore not shy in pledging faith and service to this goodwill, capital G, capital W. Early in New Worlds for Old, Wells recounts a walk with a friend through the slums of London. The crouching and drooping figures of the degenerate streets are too much for him. His friend presses him to continue, to force upon his middle-class sensibilities and proclivities the grim realities of England's indigent masses. Continuing, he realizes that goodwill, of its own accord, goes slowly, and in a while we too must die. In response to this formative evening, he pledges himself to what he calls the dream of the the finer order, the fuller, the banishment of suffering to come. His pursuit of this faith, the goodwill in him and in his kind, brought a kind of redemption, or at least a lesson focused on one's personal deficiencies. Our errors, our sins, he says, seem to matter very little. Essentially, goodwill, capital G, capital W, though an active force in the material universe, operates too slowly. Thus, Wells and any joining him in his new faith would aim to speed goodwill and quicken man's societal evolution, 
and by virtue of this crusade, their sins matter little. And this statement prefigures the practice of virtue signaling. The, 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 the socially approved works, good works, that absolve a person of personal responsibility in those supposed evils and penance all in one. H.G. Wells was already there more than a hundred years ago. Expanding upon his apologetics of socialism, Wells asserts that science shares its same foundation. In a universe characterized by chance impulse and individual will, which lead to calamities of human suffering, uh, the same ones that Wells witnessed the night of his slumwalk, both the scientists and the socialists agree that, quote, things are in their nature orderly, may be computed, may be calculated upon and foreseen, and therefore they can pursue systematic knowledge of material things. Why? Because, he says, knowledge is power. The socialist and the scientist actually, he says, share the same faith in the order, in the knowableness of things. And that power is to be used by men in cooperation to overcome chance. Thus, Wells calls for collective action and the creation of a comprehensive design for all the social activities of man. In this world state that Wells prescribes, science gathers knowledge, while socialism, in an entirely harmonious spirit, criticizes and develops a general plan of social life to replace disorder by order. So when he says there that socialism will criticize and develop will apply, will critically apply science, that's the same idea as critical consciousness. So critical race theory, critical gender theory, that idea of criticism is Hegelian and Marxist in its inception, and Wells was piggybacking off of those thinkers. So the twin allies of science, the, the twin allies, science and socialism, quite predictably share a common enemy. Who is that enemy? The secret thinking, self seeking man. For such a man, knowingly or not, subverts the constructive plan of the global planners. What becomes clear is that people are self seeking to the extent that they harbor desires contrary to the world state's aims especially primordial feelings such as preferring private ownership of property and contributing to global population in the old-fashioned way. Echoing a modern utopia's assertion that the state must be not static but kinetic, which that whole concept, not static but kinetic, that's, that's Hegelian, that's, that's the dialectic, that's uh, the overthrow of thesis by anti antithesis to produce a synthesis, which then becomes the next thesis that is over overthrown by the next antithesis and so forth and so on ad infinitum. So Wells calls socialism a developing doctrine. And of course, the manner in which it would develop would be along dialectic lines. 
and he readily admits that he is forced to deal in generalities because his doctrine has not yet worked out most of the details, which is very convenient. He says it's not that its essentials remain in doubt. He anticipates no difficulty at all in trusting that the doctrine, this this doctrine of uh, continual eternal progress uh, through, with, and by a globalist socialist state. He has no trouble trusting that that doctrine is supremely true and that in time its proper method and proper expedience uh, will be established. So for Wells, it's essential. It's, a, it's an agreed maxim that society must be drastically reorganized in a collective manner, must abolish and expropriate private property, and must function literally as the over-parent to provide for the specific physical welfare and education of every child, in some no doubt very suitable, but as yet unestablished method. So one of his critics, I would say he didn't have enough critics, but I would say his primary critic in his time was a fellow named G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton was a, was a Christian, uh, a Catholic Christian, British fellow um, in that regard, like Wells, who in fact was one of H.G. Wells's friends, and yet they, they sparred back and forth very frequently about their, their ideas for what the world is and what it should be. One of the things that, that Chesterton said in criticism of Wells is that there was an enormous possibility for failure in Wells' system. Possibility for failure, for miscalculation, since Wells never specified things that needed to be specified. In fact, there might be devils in the unaccounted details. Speaking of G.K. Chesterton, he's going to be the subject of, of, our, of our next episode, and specifically uh, so, some ways in which he further criticized H.G. Wells, despite being a, uh, a close friend of his. So that's all for, for Deuterocanons this evening. This has been H.G. Wells, Socialist Apostle, Prophet, and time traveler.